Welcome to the Growing Downward podcast, brought to you by Reformation Heritage Books. We're pleased to present Nick Thompson's sermon series on humility that was the impetus for his book, Growing Downward, a work that centers on the necessity of true humility in Christian life. Thanks for listening, and be sure to get a copy of Growing Downward at heritagebooks.org, and also make sure to visit growingdownward.com where you will find information, including interviews, study guides, and more. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to be looking this morning at verses 18 through 32, continuing our sermon series on humility. Since it's been a couple of weeks, let me just uh, remind you of uh, what we've been seeing with regards to humility, specifically as uh, we've come to define it. What is humility? And uh, we've defined humility from the book of Proverbs as the downward disposition of a Godward self-perception. It's the, the lowly spirit that is produced when we see ourselves in the light of God's glory. And we've seen that when we see ourselves before God, uh, there's, there's two main things about us that immediately come to light. The one is our creatureliness, and the other is our corruption. So we spent a number of weeks wrestling through what does it mean to have an all-controlling sense of our creatureliness. And we're continuing this morning to wrestle with what it means to have an all-controlling sense of our corruption as sinners before God. And so we come to Romans 1 towards that end. This morning, let's give our attention to God's inspired and infallible word, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind 
to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Lord, this is a heavy word this morning. It's a sobering word this morning. You have given us here in the latter half of Romans 1 and on in Romans 2 and in Romans 3 as well, a picture of us. Lord, this is not a picture of other people out there. This is a picture of what we are apart from Your grace. And we pray, Lord, that You would help us to see that. Lord, we are so quick to dismiss our sin. We are so quick to point the finger at everybody else but ourselves. And Lord, we pray that You would convict us of our own sin. That You would give us this morning an all-controlling sense of our own corruption. That You would help us to see the heinousness of our sin. Please, Lord, send Your Spirit towards this end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to study the history of revival, you would find that whenever God has seen fit to pour out the Spirit in an extraordinary manner, it always results in extreme conviction of sin. One such example of this was in 1907 in Pyongyang, what is now the capital of North Korea. Uh, There was a revival That took place, a true spirit wrought revival. And uh, and it was started by a prayer meeting. A missionary there described this prayer meeting as, quote, a mingling together of souls moved by the irresistible impulse of prayer. And so, so the church is being moved by the spirit to pray in Korea, to pray in a in a mighty way. And here's what happened. This missionary explains, as the prayer continued, a spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came down upon the audience. Over on one side, someone began to weep. And in a moment, the whole audience was weeping. Man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep, and then throw himself to the floor and beat the floor with his fists in perfect agony of conviction. My own cook tried to make a confession, broke down in the midst of it, and cried to me across the room, 
Pastor, tell me, is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? And then threw himself to the floor and wept and wept and almost screamed in agony. Sometimes after a confession, the whole audience would break out in audible prayer. And the effect of that audience of hundreds of men praying together in audible prayer was something indescribable. Again, after another confession, they would break out in uncontrollable weeping and we would all weep. We could not help it. And so the meeting went on until 2 o'clock a.m. with confession and weeping and praying. wonder if hearing that you think, well, that's, that's a little uh, extreme. It's not uh, extreme, friends. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in Isaiah. This was Isaiah's experience when he came face to face with a holy God. And if you were to study church history, you would find that it's the experience of God's people whenever God comes in power and meets with his people. We see it in the book of Acts. That the Spirit, when He comes, He comes bringing with Him an all-controlling sense of corruption. And yet, friends, that is very foreign to us today. We read stories like this and scratch our heads and don't quite know what to do with it. It doesn't quite fit into our nice little cute, comfortable church box that we've created. We're so quick to point the finger at other people, so quick to see sins in those around us, so slow to turn that finger towards ourselves and to recognize and to, to own our own corruption, to own our own sinfulness before God. How little weeping, how little sense of the heinousness, of the depravity, of the the all-pervasiveness of our sin. Friends, let's not kid ourselves. We, and I include myself in this, we are proud. We lack the all-controlling sense of corruption that is such a vital part of true spirit-wrought humility. We so often make light of our sin. We so often excuse our sin. We so often brush over our sin as if it's not a big deal. We need the Spirit to give us a sense of what the Puritans called the sinfulness of sin. Sinfulness of sin. And that's why we're looking at Romans 1 this morning. Perhaps there's, there's no more disturbing picture of our corruption than in this chapter. And we need to recognize from the start that this, this is a picture of us. Not a picture of some worldlings in the first century, though it is. It's not just a picture of those out there. Uh, This is what all of us are by nature apart 
from divine grace. Paul has just told us of this grace back in verses 16 and 17. We heard these words earlier in the worship service. Paul is reveling in this gospel, this gospel for which he is not ashamed. And why is he not ashamed of it? Because in the gospel, God has revealed righteousness. He's revealed the saving righteousness of Jesus Christ that is received by faith alone. And uh, Paul recognizes that in order to understand this, in order to understand the gospel, we need to understand something of our own sinfulness and the consequences of that sin. If we're to understand why it is that we need Christ's righteousness, why it is that we cannot work for our salvation, why it is that we must receive our salvation as a free gift, we need to understand how desperately wicked we are. And so that's where Paul goes, beginning in verse 18. He speaks of a revelation, not of God's saving righteousness, but of God's wrath. There's wrath being revealed from heaven. Paul wants us to see our plight in Adam. He wants us to see that we are bound in sin and under God's wrath. And there are four realities in our text regarding our sin that we need to see if we are to really understand and have this all-controlling sense of our corruption. The first is this, that our sin denies the inescapable knowledge of the Creator. You'll see in verse 18 that God's wrath is directed at men and women who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is what all of us do in our sin. We suppress the truth. It literally means to to hold down or to hold under the truth. When I was a kid, one of the, the popular arcade games was Whack-A-Mole. I don't know if that's still a popular game today, kids. But what it was, was it was this big machine that you would stand in front of with a bunch of fake mole heads uh, that would randomly pop up in different places. And, and what you had to do was knock these mole heads back down into the ground. That, that was the goal, to keep the moles under ground. Quite a strange game when you think about it. Uh, but it provides us with a picture of what we do in our sin. Whenever and wherever the truth pops its head up, we are always taking a giant hammer and whacking it back down. We must keep it under. We must hold it down at all costs. And Paul tells us here that the truth that we suppress, the truth that we hold down, is not just truth in the abstract. This isn't just some philosophical concept of truth. Uh, This is truth about God. You see that in verse 19. Paul goes on to explain this truth that we suppress. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Paul is here speaking about what we normally refer to in theology as general revelation. God's revelation of himself in creation. And notice uh, a few things about this. First, it is clear. This knowledge of God is plain. It's plain to them. And his attributes, Paul says, have been clearly perceived. Notice second, that it is divine. This knowledge is plain because God has shown it to them. So God is the one who is actively revealing himself. Notice third, that it is specific. This is not a knowledge of a vague deity. It's not just the knowledge that, oh, there's some kind of God out there. This is a knowledge of the true and living God. Paul says that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, are being revealed. So it's clear, it's divine, it's specific, but fourth, it's everywhere. This revelation is seen Quote, in the things that have been made. Literally, the entire creation. There's, there's nowhere that man can go without encountering the knowledge of God. The atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell, he was once asked what he would tell God on Judgment Day if it turned out in the end that God really did exist. What would he tell this God when he first came face to face with him? And he responded in this way. He said, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Paul's telling us exactly the opposite here. The evidence is so clear, so pervasive, so all embracing that sinful man, verse 20, is without excuse, no excuses for their rejection of God. Everything gives evidence to God's glory. Everywhere, God is popping up. But in our sin, we are always seeking to whack the knowledge of Him down. If you're an unbeliever here today, your problem is is not that you lack evidence for the existence of the Christian God. That's not your problem. Your problem is you. Your problem is that in your sin, you refuse to believe that which you know to be true. That's what Paul is saying here. In our pride, we seek to dethrone God. We deny our Creator. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Paul goes on in verse 21 to tell us that all all men know God. They cannot escape the revelation of the Creator. And if if you think about it, that that should be pretty, pretty obvious. That if everything in the created order is revealing the knowledge and the glory of God, if His invisible attributes are everywhere being impressed upon man, think about that. So man cannot open his eyes without encountering his creator. Okay? But think about this. Not only that, not only does he live in a world that everywhere reveals the glory of God, but man himself is created in the image of God. He is, out of everything in creation, the apex of the revelation of the glory of God. 
So man not only can't look without without encountering God, but even if he were to close his eyes to everything else and turn within, guess what? He's going to find. He's going to come face to face with his creator. There's no there's no escape of this. And yet, though sinful man knows God, he rejects that which he knows to be true. Sin is utterly irrational. It's the rejection of of that which we know. We, verse 25, exchange the truth of God for a lie. In other words, sin is insane. It is a stubborn refusal to come to terms with reality. The stubborn refusal to come to terms with the true and the living God. And this necessarily leads to idolatry. That's the second reality about our sin that we need to see. That it denies the incomparable worth of the Creator. You and I, we are created to worship and we will always worship something. If we reject the one who alone is worthy of worship, we will turn to idols. And in verse 21, Paul tells us that though we know God through his clear revelation, we do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Honor and thanks are the only reasonable responses of image bearing creatures to their creator. It just makes sense. But we refuse to give it. We will not give God glory. We will not praise Him as the sole source of our delight. We will not thank Him as the one upon whom we depend for all things. Van Til once described man in his sin as a little girl sitting on the lap of her father. And as this father lovingly holds his little girl, This girl with a scowl on her face raises her hand and slaps her father across the face. Bentil said that is exactly what sinful man is always doing. Now, what what was his point? His point was, think about it. Here here is sinful man. Here is you, you and I in our sin. Uh, we are just like this little girl. This little girl is uh, completely dependent upon her father. She's dependent upon his loving embrace. The only reason that she can reach up and slap him across the face is because he's holding her. He's there, present with her. And Van Til said that's exactly how it is with us in our sin. The only reason that we can defy God is because God is in that very moment there. Because God is in that very moment upholding us. It is He who we are entirely dependent upon even as we defy Him. Who's the one giving that man his life and breath? Who is the one causing his brain to function? Who's the one that designs the logic by which he's constructing arguments against God? Who is the one that made and upholds everything that he uses to defy God? The obvious answer is God. God did. 
And yet here is what we do in our sin. In the loving arms of our Creator, we reach up and we slap our Creator across the face. We will not give thanks to Him. We will not honor Him. We will not worship Him. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Think about this. The glory of the immortal God. We're giving that up. We're saying we don't want anything to do with that. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what we do in our sin. We worship the creature instead of the Creator. We exchange God's glory for lesser things. Created things. Now it's easy for us to just read this and think, oh well, we don't do what they did in the first century. We don't have idols and temples to these goddesses of gold and and silver. But friends, we have our gods here this morning. We have gods that we bow down to other than the true and the living God. We worship at the feet of material prosperity. We worship at the feet of career success. We worship at the feet of celebrity icons. We worship at the feet of sexual pleasure. We worship at the feet of physical health and fitness. We worship at the feet of political power. We worship at the feet of ethical autonomy. And all of these things, all of these forms are of idol worship, are simply varied manifestations of our infatuation with the sovereign self. That's the problem. In our pride, we have suppressed the truth of our Creator. Because we want to be king. Listen, the heart behind all idolatry is an exalted me. An exalted me who is tirelessly pursuing purpose and pleasure in things other than God. And we do it all the time. We do it all the time. And it is this, Paul is saying, that warrants God's wrath. Idolatrous truth suppression. This is why God's holy fury is being revealed from heaven. And rightfully so. God would not be good if He was not entirely opposed to all that which is not good. He would not be love unless He hated all forms of evil. The Creator must be against that which denies him. The question is, as we come to this text, maybe you were asking it even as we read it this morning, how exactly is God revealing his wrath from heaven? It's, it's not a, a common occurrence for us to see sinners being struck down by divine lightning bolts. So how is it that God's revealing his wrath? And that brings us to uh, the third reality about our sin, and that's that it denies the irreversible design of the Creator. Paul goes on to tell us how this wrath is revealed, that it's revealed in God giving men over 
to their sin. That's how God's revealing His wrath. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Those words, God gave them up, are some of the most terrifying in the Bible. God gave men up. He's lifting his restraints. In his wrath, he's actually giving men what they want. He's saying, you have defied me. You've gone your own way. And in my judgment, I'm not coming after you. I'm leaving you to your own devices. I'm handing you over to your sin in order that you might self-destruct. That's what is being set before us here. A terrifying reality. And God is perfectly just in doing it. He's doing it because man has rejected God. He's rejected the, the knowledge of God. He's rejected the worship of God. He's doing it, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He's doing it because man has become proud. This is pride in its essence. We defined it a couple of sermons ago as the haughty disposition of an idolatrous self-perception. It's the rejection of our creatureliness. It's the rejection of God as Creator. And it is this that is leading God in His wrath to give men over to their sinful devices. Paul zeroes in on one specific example of this in verses 26 and 27. He says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Want to know what it looks like for God's wrath To be revealed. This is what Paul says. It looks like men and women being given over to homosexual passions. That is one manifestation of the wrath of God being revealed. Now this is incredibly offensive in our current cultural climate. Uh, But there's a reason why Paul draws upon homosexuality as a primary example of sinful desire. It would have been very offensive in first century Rome as well. And Paul's not drawing upon this just to make a scene. He has a point. Paul throughout this passage has been alluding in different ways back to Genesis chapter 1. He's been alluding back to the original creation. And he's showing us here in this passage how sin essentially rejects the created order. 
It rejects the created order. We reject the truth about the creator. We reject the truth about the creature. Our pride is utterly irrational. But it's also unnatural. It is the undoing, the reversing, the distorting of the created order. And a stark example of this is found in men having sexual relations with other men and women having sexual relations with other women. Paul says that these relations are, quote, contrary to nature. They're not natural. It's simply not how God created the world to be. But here we find God in his wrath giving people over to these things. That's what Paul is telling us. He's giving them over to these unnatural, self-destructive passions. He's leaving them in the pit of sin in his judgment. And friends, is this not what we see when we look at our own nation today? I mean, all you have to do is pick up any newspaper and it becomes very apparent that what we read about in Romans 1 is what is happening right before our eyes in this world. And it's easy for us to scoff. It's easy for us to look down upon those who have gotten sucked into the LGBTQ revolution. But the reality is, we need to see this. The reality is that if God were to have left us to ourselves, we would be right there with them. We would be right there with them. By nature, that is our heart. We distort the truth. We deceive ourselves into believing it. And we live in a manner that contradicts reality. That is sin. That is pride. And it manifests itself in a host of different ways. Paul continues to explain that. To explain the result of God giving men over to their sins. Look at verse 29. And just let this flood of iniquity overwhelm you. you that is the intention of the apostle here in giving sin after sin after sin after sin. He wants us to see the sinfulness of sin. He wants us to get it. Verse 29. They were filled, filled to the full with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That is you and me by nature. Notice finally that sin denies the incorruptible judgment of the Creator. We're seeing here over and over again, that in our pride and in our sin, we deceive ourselves. 
sin is self-deception. Okay? Though we know God, we live as though He is not. Though we know that He alone is worthy of worship, we live as though He's not. Though we recognize that He has ordered the world in a particular way, we live as though He has not. You see the, the deception there? We, we live in a, a self-constructed delusion in our sin. And there's, there's one more thing that we deceive ourselves regarding here. And that is that though we know that our sin deserves death, we recognize that our sin deserves judgment. We recognize that our, our God, the God who created us, who is everywhere revealing His glory, that this God is holy and that our sin violates Him and is worthy of eternal judgment. Though we know that, we suppress it. We hold it down. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know this. We know this. Yet, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Here's the truth. Sin is not very enjoyable when you have set before your eyes the fact that it warrants eternal death and damnation. And so if you want to enjoy sin, what you have to do is hold down that truth and just pretend like it's not there. Pretend for a moment like God's not really holy. Pretend for a moment like your sin really doesn't deserve death. That's what Paul's saying that we do. If you are still in your sin this morning, recognize what Paul is saying. Recognize what you know to be true. That your sin deserves eternal death. You must stop suppressing, holding down this truth. You must embrace it if ever you would be saved. The Gospel doesn't make any sense without this reality. Why did Jesus die? Why did He die for sinners? He died for sinners because our sin deserves death. It deserves wrath. The very wrath that God's revealing from heaven. It deserves hell. Eternal damnation. And friends, you know that to be true. Even if you're in your sin today, Paul says you know it. You know your wicked deeds deserve death. And you've got to own that. You've got to come to terms with that. There's no freedom found in living in a self-constructed delusion. You can pretend like it's not true. And you can go on your supposed merry way. The only way to find true life, the only way to find true salvation is by owning your sin. By owning the fact that that sin deserves death because only then will you recognize why it is that Jesus hung upon the tree. Why it is that He died. What it is that He was doing there as He bore the sins of His people and took the wrath that that sin deserved. He died 
for sinners because our sin deserves death. And friends, we all know it. And everyone out there knows it. Many of us here have grown up in Christian homes. Many of us here cannot remember a time when we have not believed in Jesus and not trusted in His blood and righteousness. And that that is a wonderful, wonderful privilege. And I in no way want to diminish the the blessing that that is. But friends, I I think there is a danger when we come to texts like this for for those here that that is a reality. There there is a, a danger to uh, miss what Paul is saying here about us. What Paul is saying here about our sin. That this just isn't people out there. This is right here. What has made you to differ from those who are out there? Why were you born in a Christian home under the Gospel when, when others were born in broken, ungodly homes? Why was that? Why is your past not strewn with arrogant defiance of God and His worship and His design and His judgment? Why is that so? Why do you have faith in the Lord today? It is sheer grace. It's sheer grace. Know for certain that apart from God's grace, what we see here in this text, that is you And that is me. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, knowing God, and yet suppressing that truth in unrighteousness because we love our sin and we don't want some God telling us what to do. That's what we are. And friends, even those of us here today who are redeemed, those of us here who have been brought out of Adam and united to Jesus Christ, we have, we have the remains of that within us. The remains of that corruption within. And my fear is that we would leave this passage without being, without being pierced by it. That we would leave with a theoretical understanding of sin and here's what sin is and here's how it works and here's why it's foolish and yeah, maybe that was in my past, but um, but that this this text wouldn't actually uh, pierce us in the present. And so, in closing, I, I just want to give you an example from my own life and the way that the Lord's been dealing with me in this week as I've wrestled with this text, because all of us are idolatrous. Okay, let's let's just get it out there. We are, including myself. And this week, the Lord was showing me that. He was showing me a specific way that I am prone to worship the creature, the creation, instead of the, the creator. And prone to make light of my sin. And, and that is... Uh, what, what I began to notice this week is that after a stressful meeting or a, a stressful day, I would look for relief. 
And where should I have gone for my relief? Well, obviously, to Christ. Obviously, to the Lord, to his word, to his presence, to his people. Uh, what, I, what I have begun to notice this week is that typically the natural bent of my heart when I'm feeling that way and wanting comfort and satisfaction is not to go to Christ, but to go to the refrigerator. And it is in our day and in our culture, I think, uh, very, very easy to make light of that. Uh, we, we make light of the sin of, of gluttony. We make jokes about it and, um, and treat it as if it is not a big deal. It's a big deal. It's idolatry. Okay? Not because food is bad, not because food is not a good gift from God to be enjoyed, but because I'm seeking my satisfaction and my delight and my comfort and my pleasure in something other than the Creator, something that He made. God is standing here offering me infinite comfort and satisfaction and life, and I'm saying, thank you, God, thank you very much, but I'd rather have a chocolate bar. Christ! And I choose chocolate? That, that's the folly of what we're seeing in our text. But friends, that is a reality that plays it, itself out in our daily existence. It might not be food. It might be sex. It might be money. It might be possessions. It might be a spouse. It might be friends. It might be whatever. But all of these things, created things, creaturely things, that we are elevating to the position of God. This is what I'm going to find my satisfaction in. This is where I'm going to find my life. This is what I'm going to worship. And what's bothered me this week is how little it bothers me. How little it bothers me. I see it, okay? The Lord's showing me. This is sin. I see it, but... It doesn't bother me like it should. Like this is a sin deserving death. Jesus died for gluttony. It's not something that God takes lightly. And here I am. Yeah, I should probably work on that. No, I should weep over that. I should be broken over that. But the reality is I don't have an all-controlling sense of my own corruption. I don't see how heinous my sin is. I'm proud. And that's why I need Romans 1. That's why you and I need the Holy Spirit to be doing what He did in Pyongyang in 1907. We need that. We need the Spirit to help us to see our sin. Let's pray for that. Let's ask for that. Let's seek after that, that we might know true humility and the blessing that comes from it. And that we might more tightly embrace Jesus because that's the great blessing of knowing your sin and my sin. It's that it shows us how desperately needy we are of Him. Let's pray.